Well, if you look around the room, you'll see a bunch of folks wearing gray t-shirts this morning. The reason they are wearing those shirts is because they volunteered and were serving at our sports camp this past week, and we had a phenomenal week. We had a lot of returning kids and a lot of new kids as well, and it's just had a lot of fun. Weather worked out for us. If you remember last Monday, uh, it was crazy. I mean, storms all around us. Literally, I think the sky split and went around our campus, and it rained everywhere but here, and it was just amazing to, to see God's providence there and his provision, and just gave us good weather all week, and we had good attendance, and we had good uh, morale and camaraderie, and just thank God for, for, for what he's done this past week. Thank you to all of you who are wearing gray t-shirts this morning, and thank you for serving this past week. Some of you, like myself, chose not to wear the gray t-shirt. Um, I understand that. But uh, we had a good, good week. Thank you for Jennifer and her leadership and, and just that whole team. They're just awesome. So, yeah, give them a round of applause. <clears throat> I want to invite you to take your Bible, and I want you to hold it up in the air with me, if you will. And I want us to say something together. It's going to be on the screen. We're talking about the Bible today, and so I want us to say this. It's going to be on the screen for us. This is God's very word given to me. I am who it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. And I have all that it says is mine. You believe that? I want to take, invite you to take that Bible that you just held up in the air. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first five verses of this chapter this morning. And I want to speak to this subject, the primacy of the Word. The first place of the Word in our life. The first place of the Word in our church. That's what we want to see and talk about this morning. It's been said... The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its decisions are immutable. Read it to believe, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's guide, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven is opened, and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, daily, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and will be, will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility. It will reward the greatest la- labor, and it condemns all who trifle with its contents. What we have before us here in 2 Timothy is, as we've already addressed this past summer, or the past several weeks of this summer, This is Paul's final letter that he's going to write before he rides off into the glorious sunset. He is, as he's going to say, finished the race. He has kept the faith. And now it is time for him to depart from this life and to be with his maker for all of eternity. And so this is his final letter written to the church. In it here, he calls for Timothy and the elders to guard the gospel message, to to guard the doctrine of the church encourages them to endure suffering as a good soldier, and he challenges them to focus on the work of ministry, to live godly lives before all people, and to hold high the Word of God. 
What we find in this chapter, chapter 4, is the high view of Scripture is to be the sole influencer of all of our preaching and all of our teaching. The primacy of the Word. Look with me as we read these first five verses this morning. Paul says to Timothy, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. As we read these five verses here, as we contemplate what Paul is addressing to Timothy, and he's talking here about the, the primacy of the Word, the, the, the preeminence of the Word of God in our lives and in our ministry as a church, it, it ought to lead us to ask some questions, even about our own understanding, our own belief when it comes to the Bible. And so is the Bible sufficient in all we need? Think about that question. Is the Bible sufficient, and does it contain everything that we need for godliness and ministry? Should it be for us the basis for all that comes from this pulpit and from our small groups in our church ministry? Is the Bible enough for us? Is it enough to keep our attention, to direct our focus in life? Is it enough? Carl Barth once said, if preaching, if, if preaching is faithful to the Bible, it cannot be tedious. Scripture is, in fact, so inter interesting that those who listen cannot possibly be overcome with sleep. I've preached for many years, and I see people sleep on a regular basis in church. So I, I, so I read this statement from Carl Barth, and I think, well, I've seen a lot of people sleep. I've slept in church before. So is the problem with the Word of God, or is the problem with me? I, obviously, there's some medical issues. I, I pastored a church once where every single Sunday, about the three-quarters of the way through the sermon, a guy that would sit middle, and we had a worship center very similar to this, but three times the size, and we had a middle section, a side, and another side. He would sit in the middle section, three rows back, every single Sunday. He would get up three-quarters of the way through the sermon, get up, walk to the restroom that was behind the worship center, just like ours are, and then walk back. The reason he did that is because his water pill kicked in, and he couldn't hold it any longer. So... I understand all of that. But Carl Barth, I believe, is saying something here that we need to listen to. The Word of God, if we really understand what it is and what God has given us, this gift in His Word, it cannot be boring to us. It cannot be tedious to us. No, what it is is it's life-giving. It's refreshing. It's, it's encouraging. It's something that excites us in our life. You see, I contend that the issue here is not whether the Bible is interesting, but whether I am interested in the Bible. It comes down to me. It comes down to you. It's not with God. He is interesting. He has something to give us, and he has given us something great. The question is, am I ready and willing to receive it into my life? Am I willing to take it and apply it into my life, or am I going to pass it off as something that's old, something that's boring, something that's unneeded in my life? Paul here informs Timothy that he had one primary responsibility as the preacher. He was to preach the word. 
And so this morning, I want us to see that a high view of the Bible should lead to a high view of biblical preaching and teaching. And because God uses the biblical preaching and teaching in the local church to mature the church and to sanctify his church. And so let's take a look at what Paul calls, Paul's call here for the primacy of the word in the church. Three main things I want us to see this morning. First of all, he points out the pastor's charge in the first two verses. He, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The pastor's charge. As we read through those verses, do you feel the force of Paul's words? Do you feel the force of verse 1 in particular where Paul says, I charge you. And then he, in this charge, he says, I charge you by the presence of God and Christ Jesus. And he's going to judge the living and the dead. He's gonna, he has appeared and he's going to reappear. I charge you. Listen to me, Timothy. This is what you're to be doing. Paul's words here resonate with passion. I mean, nowhere else did the apostle give this sort of preface to a charge, except for right here as he's about to go off the scene. He puts preaching in a holy context with these words. Paul here wanted Timothy to understand and to remember that he preached before God. And when he stood up and spoke, thus saith the Lord, his audience first and foremost was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in, in a sense preaching to an audience of one. Sure, there was a church listening there. Sure, there were other unbelievers there listening. In whatever context he found himself, when he was declaring the word of God and teaching the word of God, he had an audience of humans, but his first audience was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was going to stand one day and give an account. And so this is the challenge here. This is the charge here. This is the passionate words of Paul telling him to stand up and make sure you do one thing, and that is to preach. And so what is he to preach? He's to preach the word. He says, preach the word in verse 2. The command here grammatically is in the aorist tense, and together with the ensuing imperatives, it adds solemnity and decisiveness to these injunctions. In other words, he, he's given urgency to this. He's saying, you need to do this. This is a primary responsibility in your life. The charge is to preach the word. What is the word? It's the sacred scriptures. He's already mentioned it earlier in chapter 3. If we were to go up just a few verses... Speaks of the sacred scriptures. And then in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, he says that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's, it's, it's God voiced out. And so it's not your word, Timothy, that you're sharing. It's not my, your, my word that you're sharing, Timothy. It's the word of God. You're to de declare it. You're to preach this. There's nothing else for the preacher to preach. He's to preach the word. and nothing but the word. I, so many times... I think about what some so-called preachers are, are declaring in churches around the world, and, and I think, man, that's awful clever of you. And it's amazing that you can do certain things and, and that you're, you're able to declare these things and be creative in all these different ways. And sometimes I look at myself and I think, I'm not that creative. I don't have that abilities. And then I look back at the Scriptures and I say, God's not calling me to do that. God's calling me to preach one thing, and I'm going to try to do it in a creative way that's applicable to your life. But I'm here to declare the Word of God, not seven helps to whatever, but the Word of God. I have nothing to offer the church today other than what God offers in His Word. Our small group, group leaders today have nothing to offer except what the Word of God says. And so they teach the Bible because it is the Word of life. 
So Timothy has the holy responsibility and the unspeakable privilege of heralding God's timeless truth to people. It's a privilege to stand and declare, thus saith the Lord. The Word and the Word alone is what is alive. It is what is active. It is the only thing, as Hebrews 4.12 would tell us, it's the only thing that can divide the heart and the soul. It's the only thing that can go and do heart surgery on a person, cut out what needs to be cut out, and repair what needs to be repaired. I can't do that in and of myself. I don't have those skills. Sure, I can put something together. I can form a speech, but it's not the speech itself. It's the power of God through the Word of God that does the holy surgery that needs to take place in a person's life. He says, preach the word. So pop psychology and self-help and motivational speaking, they may have their place, but they can never touch the deep places of the heart. They can never transform a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, from the inside out. All they do is dress up the outside, but they can never change what's on the inside. Proverbs tells us this. Guard your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. You see, we need to be transformed from the inside out because the, we, we can dress up and we can cover and we can mask and wear a facade and play a certain game and, and, and look a certain way. And some people will be fooled by that, but we will never be fooled by that. Your own person won't be fooled by that, and God himself will never be fooled. So we need to be changed from the inside, and only Jesus can do that. The only way we know about Jesus is from this book. God's word alone has the power to transform a person's life. And so what else is there to preach? Nothing. The reason we're a church that believes the Bible is because we believe we have nothing else to go to. We have nothing else to offer ourselves or others. We come to the Bible because God says it is enough. We work through the Bible because it is enough. We're not here to to be motivational in our speaking, even though we want to encourage others. But what can we do to help someone other than give them what God has said about their life? They can't know anything else but what God has said. So the preacher is to be a man of the Word, and you can't preach the Word unless you know the Word. You can't be a biblical teacher unless you know the Word. You can't be a growing Christian without knowing the Word. Timothy here is charged to preach the Word. Secondly, we see he's told to be ready. The charge is to be ready. He says be ready in season and out of season. It speaks again of urgency. It speaks of readiness. And so for preachers and teachers, there should always be a sense of urgency in light of the truth of God's Word. A sense of urgency in light of communicating this Word. So we are preaching on matters. Think about this. Matters of life and death and eternity. That's what we're dealing with here. That's why we're to handle the Word of God carefully, because we're dealing with eternal things, not temporal things. It's an eternal weight. So the preaching soldier needs to view himself as always on duty. So think about that for a second. Does this mean the preacher needs to have an unpreached sermon tucked away in his pocket or saved under some sort of breakable glass that says break in case of an emergency and you, you get to a certain situation and you break the glass and pull out the sermon and you're, and you're ready. Is that what Paul's saying when he says be ready in season and out of season? I, maybe, but I don't think so. I, I've been in some situations over the years, especially when I'm overseas and, and you get that tap on the shoulder and be like, uh, and the pastor's going to be sharing in just a month. And we're like, um, 
I wish you'd have told me that like two months ago when we were planning this trip, I would have prepared for that, or at least on our way to this engagement, I wish you'd have said, Pastor, I'm going to ask you to say something. And so in those moments, you're just like, you're flipping out. You're like, what am I going to do? And, and so you just off the cuff, you're, obviously you're trusting the Spirit like you would any other time, but maybe a little bit more. And, and the Lord provides and gives. And, and really what I always do in those times and those situations is I fall back, usually in what I read that morning, that morning in my devotion time. The freshest word that I have from the Lord, the thing that God's spoken to me about, I, I usually deliver that. But Paul says here, be ready in season and out of season. I believe what he really is driving at here is not to have a three-point sermon always readily at hand. But I believe his point was for Timothy to be so familiar with God's word and so ready that he could and he would bring the word of God to bear on any and every situation. In each situation facing the church, Timothy was to be aware and ready to share. What does God say about this moment? The Spirit of God leads the man of God in these times. Timothy here was charged to be ready. Secondly or thirdly, he was charged to strengthen the church. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. In other words, the pastor should apply the word of God to the lives of his flock, the people in the church. This takes place in a variety of, of ways. Paul, again, he says, Timothy, you're to reprove and to rebuke and to exhort. Uh, to reprove is to bring to proof. It's the idea of exposing what is present. If there's something there that's not right, something there that's not holy, something there that's not pleasing to God, it's the responsibility of the preacher and the teacher to put the finger and the word of God right there in that midst and expose it. To rebuke is to call out what is wrong and what needs correcting. So it takes us a, a step further. To exhort literally means to call to a person. It's the idea of calling someone to your side for the sole purpose of speaking and encouraging a particular conduct. It's always perspective and looking to the future. Reproof and rebuke are a little different. They look at what has been and what perhaps is. Exhortation is looking at what could be and what should be in the person's life. And so Paul is telling Timothy, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a heralder of God's word, you're to here to reprove and to rebuke and to, and, and, and to exhort the church so that they can be strengthened. You can't walk in sin and be strong. These are the duties of the pastor and teacher, which in turn are going to strengthen the church. And so strong members, think about this, strong members make a strong church. Weak members make a weak church. As a church with covenant membership, we are as strong as our weakest member. Think about that. We're as strong as our weakest Remember, that ought to encourage all of us to strive to be stronger in our faith, deeper in our faith, walking closer with the Lord than we have before. So on some level, we're to be exercising church discipline. Here we have a biblical mandate for this. And, and, and in some way, in one way I guess, even as you stand and preach in a setting like this or in a small group when you're teaching the Word of God, we are in essence carrying out an aspect of church discipline. Are we personally putting our finger on certain situations? Maybe not specifically. Are we calling someone out to repent of sin? Perhaps not on a regular basis, at least not personally and corporately. Are we exhorting? Yes, but maybe, again, not specifically, but God, through his Holy Spirit, is taking the word of God and he's pressing upon each and every person's life. He's taking the word of God and he's applying it to your situation and he's beginning through his spirit, which can do a whole lot more and better 
than I can in a person's life. I, I don't know what's going on in everyone's heart. Again, we all put on our faces. We come to church and we act like it's hunky-dory, but we probably just had a knockdown drag out on the way to church. We get here, we smile, and, hey, brother, so-and-so, we walk in and everything looks great, but God knows what's in your heart. He knows how you spoke to your wife this morning. He knows what you said to your kids. He knows, kids, how you disobeyed your parents on, on Sunday morning coming to church. It's amazing that hell breaks out in the home as we try to get ready for church. Not my home, of course. <laughs> it's actually really, really good today, in all honesty. <laughs> so we're to strengthen the church. We're to use the Word of God to do that. I like what Martin Luther once said. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. And it has hands. It lays hold on me. I remember the day I came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There was a long period of time where I was wrestling with that. I knew I was lost. You've heard my testimony. But I, I don't believe, based upon the word of God, that we can get saved until God draws us to himself. And so there was a stirring there. There was a drawing there. There was a, there was a little bit of encouragement to go that way. But until the door is opened by the Holy Spirit, we cannot walk through that door. And so the day it was open, you know what God used to speak into my life? His word. It chased me down. It laid hands on me. And so I couldn't do anything but give my life to Jesus. And when we listen to the teaching of the Word of God, when we study the Word of God, when we sit under the preaching week in and week out, God is able through His Word to reprove and to rebuke and to exhort the people of God. His Spirit illuminates the Word and applies it to every single person in the right spot. Every Sunday this happens. And so... The pastor here is charged to preach the word, to be ready, to, and to strengthen the church. He's to do this by patiently teaching the word of God. That's what he says in verse 2. Patiently, with complete patience and teaching. Anybody patient in life? I, I, I'm not a super patient guy. I've got some patience. There's some things that I wish would go faster. And It's funny, as I grow and hopefully in maturing in my faith, I've, and in my experience in ministry, I've learned to to accept things at the speed at which they come. I would love for us as a church to be blowing and going much greater than we are right now. I would love, and this is, I'm finishing up my fourth year, I would love to be able to say at the end of the fourth year, we have went from uh, 150 or so, and we are, we're running 500 as a church because we're, and I don't say that just to boast numbers, I would love to say that because we are making that much more, greater of an impact on our community, but we can't say that today. But in four years, I can look back and say, man, there's been some incredible things that have happened in the lives of people and families in our church, and he's taken us on steps of faith like never before. And all of that is attributed not to my leadership or our elders or anyone else in our church. It's the faithfulness of the Word of God as he challenges us. I've heard stories over the last four years of people who would come up and say, Pastor, I, I really didn't understand tithing. I really didn't believe in it, for instance. But I, I trusted what the Word says. I began to practice it in my life. And now I'm beginning to see the dividends of His faithfulness as I've sought to be faithful to Him in this particular area. And so there are wins along the way. We need to celebrate those wins. But the only way we get wins is when we stand on the Word of God and we apply it in its context and its entirety to our lives. That's the pastor's charge. Let's move to the church's danger. You know how I say a whole lot more than I plan to say on certain things? Verse 3. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Before I break this down and, and really dissect it for us as a church, I wanted to set something straight here. I think a lot of times we make the mistake of reading this, these two verses and saying, man, that's just like our culture. You can look out there in our culture, that, that's what we're seeing. They, they don't love God anymore. They don't appreciate the Bible anymore. We're taking it out of schools. We, we've done all this. We don't pray like we should, like we used to. And so we look at our culture and say, this is in, uh, indicative of our culture. No, that's not what Paul's writing about. Remember what the context. He's writing to a pastor, and he's speaking about a church. He's saying there's coming a day, and I th- obviously he's speaking futuristically, but he's also speaking, I think this happens in the life cycle of every church, right? We all run the danger of running this way because we're humans, and if we allow ourselves to deviate just the slightest little bit, we will run off course. And so Paul is speaking to a church, and the reason culture becomes so secular is not because lost people act like lost people. The reason culture begins to act more and more secular and atheistic and antagonistic toward God and the things of God is because the church begins to look secular. Did you hear that? It's not because lost people act like lost people. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. They're doing what we used to do before we came to know Christ. However, Paul's saying here that there's a danger in the church of letting our grasp, our grasp of the things of God become loose, if not open, and we begin to lose touch with where we should be at and how we should be living. So let's look at the church's danger. We find at least three dangers here. First of all, letting go of the truth. He says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Letting go of the truth. People naturally move away from the truth. This prophetic word covers the whole of biblical history, both in retrospect and in prospect. In other words, you could read back in the history of the the Bible, and you could see from the very beginning, Genesis 3, all the way to where Paul's writing this, and then up to our day and time, and you could see that this is indicative of human nature. We will, we have the propensity to walk away from the truth. The move is gradual. You don't just jump off the the cliff and all of a sudden you're denying every aspect of the Word of God. That's not how it happens. Churches don't just fall in full head-on liberalism. They start little and it begins to incrementally grow in their liberal tendencies, right? They deviate just a little bit, just a little bit. You see it in Israel's history. Israel, they began to sacrifice in the high places, and those weren't taken down. And a little bit led to a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. And you come to the, the, the latter, especially the ten tribes of Israel. What you see in the latter years of that kingdom is they look just like, if not worse, than the nations around them. But it didn't start that way. It started little, and it moved. It's a gradual move. It's a slight deviation here and there. The slight departures begin to build one on another, and the result is a total rejection of truth. The second danger is that we have the tendency to align teaching to passions. That's what happens. You you let go of the truth, and you begin to align the teachings that you desire to the passions that you have. Here's a statement that I came across this week. People do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. They reject it because it contradicts them. Think about that for a second. You talk to any person who has serious contradictions with this Bible, and they say, I don't believe that. 
That was written by men. Whatever argument they want to come up with, it's not because they can prove the Bible contradicts itself. Their hostility toward the Bible is because it contradicts their sinful life. Anytime you have an issue with the Bible, it's not because you have an issue with God and his, whole, his word being holy and right. It's because his word, which is holy and right, contradicts your unholy and unrighteous life. So we align teaching to passions. 1 Kings chapter 22 and 2 Chronicles chapter 18, we come across a story, the same story in two different books. If you're reading with me and some others this year through the one-year Bible, we read this a few weeks ago. It's the story of King Jehoshaphat. He's the king of Judah, a righteous man, a godly king, and he, for whatever reason, aligns himself with the wicked and godless king of Israel. His name's Ahab. And so they're going to align. Ahab came to Jehoshaphat and said, hey, man, will you, uh, this is my version, by the way, um, hey, dude, will you come and join me and let's go and let's fight against the king of Syria over Ramoth-Gilead because it really belongs to us. It was a part of the Davidic kingdom and Syria had taken it from them. And so Jehoshaphat agreed on one condition. He said, I will go with you. If God is in it. And so Ahab, all right, let's, let's hear from God. And so he calls 400 of his prophets who were all prophesied favorably. We see this in 2 Chronicles 18.5. Jehoshaphat, I think he had some spiritual discernment about him. And so he heard what these 400 prophets said, all saying, go and do it. God's going to give you the victory. Go and, and be victorious. And so Jehoshaphat said, is there not someone else who can speak for the Lord? King Ahab responded there in 18, verse 7. He says, There is yet one man by whom we may, we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imla, but I hate him. <laughs> Why do you hate him, Ahab? For he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. So Micaiah was sent for and instructed to speak favorably to the king, just like the other prophets did. I love his response in verse 13. He says, As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. That's what I'm going to speak. Why did Ahab hate Micaiah? It was simply because Micaiah's words reproved, rebuked, and exhorted the king to cast away his sin and to walk wholly before the God of heaven. Ahab viewed God's word as intolerant because it exposed his sinfulness before a holy God. That's why he hated the prophet. It wasn't so much that he hated Micaiah. He hated the God behind the words of Micaiah. And so for Ahab, Micaiah and his prophecies were seen as evil. They were seen as those not, those not to be tolerated. In the place of the one who spoke for God, Ahab placed men who would speak for him. That's what happens if we're not careful in the church. We will take and marginalize the word of God, and we will put in place the things that make us feel good about ourselves. It's a dangerous place to be when we get comfortable with where we're at spiritually. He aligned the teachings around him to his passions. Today, I believe this is just as common as it has been in every generation. When the biblical preaching does not, does not line up with individuals' belief system or relational situation, what we see happening in church after church after church is that person will get up, pack their stuff, and move on down to the next church or the next philosophical idea. And what they're doing is they're searching for something that's going to meet them where they are rather than taking themselves and meeting God where he is. There's a big difference. One will lead you straight to hell. 
And the other will bring you into relationship with a God who loves you and who's done everything necessary to redeem you. And so Paul here warns of itching ears. Itching ears that cannot endure sound teaching. And so this leads us to a third danger. That is chasing mythical thrills. He says they're going to wander off into myths. Today we have all kinds of preachers who tickle the ears of all kinds of people. Some teach that one cannot believe the miracles of the Bible. We hear that in our day and, day and age. Others draw attention as they deny the historical reliability of the Bible. And so they, they try to poke holes in the historicity of the Bible. Many will fill stadiums and arenas with the shady and empty health and wealth prosperity teachings and so prevalent here in America and having such an incredible influence in places like Africa around the world. It's dangerous and it leads people into, well, it keeps them, I should say, in their depravity. Some are grand entertainers or teachers of bizarre doctrines that pique the curiosity of people. And so uh, because we have this... This, this, this tendency to want to align the teachings that we listen to, the, to the passions that we enjoy, we allow our curiosity to get the best of us. And so the danger is not the size of the crowds they draw, but it's the, da- the message that they proclaim. So we would do well to filter their teachings through the grid of Scripture. I, I, I would tell you this, it, any person, myself included, you ought to hear what they say, but then filter it through the grid of Scripture which means you need to know the Word of God. There, I think the reason so many, this is put it in our denomination, the reason so many Southern Baptists are, Southern Baptists are drawn into heresies because you, didn't, you don't know the Word of God. We, we've not discipled our people well enough for them to know the Scriptures and to be versed in the Scriptures, and, and, and their lives are not indicative of a heart change because we've not taught them like we should. So know the Bible. As a church, we must preach the truth because there's an absence of it absence of it in every generation. This leads us to a third area of primacy of the word in the church, the pastor's work. So the pastor's charge, the church's danger. Now he's going he's to tell Timothy what he needs to be doing. Verse 5, be sober-minded, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Here we see, as in previous passages, Paul is once again contrasting the present situation in Ephesus with Timothy's call to be different. Can I get an amen for the fact that God calls you as a follower of Jesus to be different? If you're not different, when the person you live next to, the person you walk ne- or work next to, the person that sits next to you in class every single day, when their life begins to fall off the cliff and they're looking out for someone to, to grab a hold of so that they don't fall out and kill themselves or on, the, on the, this, the, the terribleness of life, if you don't look different from them, how do they know they can reach out to you? How do they know that they can find hope in the God that you have found hope in? And so our lives, our lives must be different. That's what Paul's calling Timothy to do. And so even though many would be led into to deception by false teaching, Timothy here must do something else. We must be a church that stands on the word of God. And so three things about this work. He speaks of the transformation of the mind. He says, be sober-minded. You know Romans 12 too, right? He says there, Paul, to the church at Rome, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and 
perfect. The Bible calls us to a transformation in our mind. And how does that take place? The Word of God. It transforms us. We begin to think differently because God's Word is influencing how we think. So here, Paul tells Timothy that the pastor is to be of sober mind. It speaks of moral alertness. It speaks of coolness of mind. Uh, we should be able to see and, and, and recognize things that are wrong, things that are error because our mind has been trained to recognize the truth. You've heard this, I'm sure. A lot of preachers like to use this as an illustration. But when the U.S. Treasury begins to train their, their associates, their employees, and even bank tellers to be able to, to, to correctly identify a uh, dollar bill or a $100 bill, whatever the currency may be, they don't use counterfeit, they use the, the original. They use the real thing. They're to study the authentic, not the counterfeit. So here's what we need to do, and this is how we recognize counterfeit theologies in the world. We study the authentic. We study the real. We study the Word of God more and over and above anything else that we would study about other philosophies and religions and teachings of this world. It leads us also to be cool-headed, have a coolness of mind. So the pastor should not lose his mind in the face of opposition or evil. Sometimes that can happen. But instead, like a pilot flying through rough air, he should wisely and calmly navigate with a cool disposition because the task is not an easy one. For those of you, and I joked about this last week, but I'm going to joke again. For those of you who think the pastor works one day a week and it's just, you wake up, you, you put something together, you walk up here. Man, that's, let me just tell you this. I preach for free here. You don't pay me to preach. I get a check whenever that comes, couple, or two or three weeks, uh, or I guess every other week. I, that's not for preaching in my, my book. Uh, you pay me to go to meetings. You pay me to lead. You pay me to do that stuff. I preach for free. I preached for free if I was a billionaire. I, I just, that's calling on my life. I enjoy doing it. I love doing it. Uh, but the other stuff, and even the preaching, it's, it's task, tasking on, your, on a person's life. But ministry is hard. Ministry is difficult. The pressures, the problems that come with it can be overwhelming. I mean, there are, there are pastors by the dozens, even in our own denomination, that quit every single week. And if they don't quit, and Jan's shaking her head, she knows. Her husband's in the midst of it, ministering to pastors all throughout our state convention. And even if, even if they don't quit, man, Monday morning's coming and they want to quit. And God's got to encourage them and, and, and strengthen them and, and help them to get up and put their shoes on and get right back at it that, that next week. It, it, that's hard. It's laborsome. It can be overcoming or overwhelming. And so it requires a constant and complete dependency upon the Lord and a denial of self. Secondly, he speaks of suffering well. This is part of the work. Again, the subject of hardship is presented here. You're to endure suffering, he says. Timothy and every pastor are to continue through this conflict. It's continuation of what I was just saying. The work is to avoid being bitter in hardship, quitting because of hardship, or responding in violence to hardship. I can remember many times as in my younger years getting hit, metaphorically speaking. I've never been struck by a church member. A couple times I thought I was going to get struck physically. And probably back then I was a little bit um, less mature and I probably would have struck them back. And it would have been an all-out fight and we'd have been in Baptist Press and Fox News or whatever else because of what happened. Thankfully, it didn't happen, but it can be hard. So the pastor is to 
share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's the call. It's part of the deal. It's part of the deal as a Christian. We're going to suffer. If you know Jesus, you will know some level of suffering. Jesus said it, and three Gospels in- included it. Matthew 10, 22, Mark 13, 13, and Luke 21, 17. If you don't believe me, go to those passages, and Jesus tells us right there. I've endured suffering. You will endure suffering. So the work involves becoming a man of prayer rather than of despair. Thirdly and lastly, gospel proclamation. The work includes gospel proclamation. We're going to highlight this much more detail next Sunday. But most likely, as Paul mentions this, he says, do the work of an evangelist. Most likely, he doesn't have in mind here the official office of an evangelist. You see that office mentioned in, in, in the letter to the Ephesian church. Probably he didn't have that particular office in mind, but the idea of doing or participating, even if he did have it in mind, he's telling Timothy here that he's to do the work of the evangelist, right? He's to be a proclaimer, a heralder, a preacher of the gospel. It's his work to, to proclaim this to lost sinners. He has to take it to an unbelieving word, world. So in a broad sense, all Christians, we know this from Matthew 28, all Christians are called and commissioned to go and to tell, to proclaim the gospel where they live, work, and play. What we're to do is to push back the darkness of, uh, of hell with the light of Christ. So this is why we get on a plane and fly to distant countries. This is why we walk across the street. It's because God's called each and every one of us, if you know Jesus, to tell someone about Jesus. In a month, well, two months, four of us will board a plane out of D.C. We'll fly through Dubai to Calcutta, India, to uh, have a vision trip to see the work of Donna and Gautam Kishore. They were just here a couple weeks ago. And then I will board a plane in November and I will fly with other people from our state convention, from our area sister churches. And we will go back to Barcelona uh, to do a Thanksgiving type of uh, thing with the North Africans there. And we will engage them. What do we do all that? Why do we spend all that money? It's because we want to take the kingdom of Christ to the lostness of this world, to proclaim the gospel. How will a sinful and separated people ever know a holy God without redeemed preachers and people proclaiming the gospel? The answer is they won't. And so we, and I would add the church, must work in the transformation of their minds, suffer well, and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. He says here we are to fulfill our ministry. What is our ministry? Preach the gospel. That's what it's about. Hold high the word of God. And allow God to use it to change lives. Going back to 2 Chronicles 18. When the prophet Micaiah came before King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat, he pronounced disaster on the people. He even pronounced the, the, the death of the king of Israel. Listen to how he was treated and his response. I'm going to read verses 23 through 27. Then Zedekiah, the son of Kenanah, came and struck Micaiah on the cheek. And he said, which way did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with meager rations and bread and water until I return in peace. And Micaiah said, if we return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. 
Micaiah here was physically abused. He was mocked. He was in prison for declaring God's word. And in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, he lived out his charge and continued in his work as a preacher of God. May we as a Christ, as Christ's local church, may we continue to emulate the same and similar life and ministry of this prophet. Paul here and Timothy as well did this. They stood and they preached in the face of opposition. Paul was many times brutally uh, wounded. He was even stoned and left for dead, and yet he continued to preach. He continued to declare the word of God. They stood on it because of its primacy. I love John chapter 6. John tells us there that because of the harsh words of the Lord Jesus, many of his followers began to walk away. And Jesus looked at his 12 and he asked them, do you also want to go? Do you remember Peter's response in John 6, 68? Lord, where do we go? For you alone have the words of life, right? Where are we going to go? There's nowhere else to go. May we be as a church just like that. Where else could we go? The God of heaven has spoken and he's given us his word. We call it the Bible. Where else can we go to hear from God? The answer is nowhere. Word of God is truth. It contains the words of eternal life. And so this morning, there's some good news, there's some bad news, and there's some best news that we need to hear. The good news is that you and I are all loved by God. God's designed you. He created you for a relationship with himself. He created you perfectly to be able to interact with him in in holy communion. The bad news is is that we are all sinful and broken. We all possess an inherited and self-inflicted wound. This sinful nature that comes from Adam that that was inflicted on us there in the garden as he rebelled against God. That nature's been passed down from generation to generation so that we are all born into sin. We are all born separated from a holy God, broken in our lives. The best news is is that the gospel declares God the Son, Jesus Christ, has paid the penalty for our sins. Romans 5.8 tells us that God has demonstrated his love in this, that he died for us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He offered his life as a substitute to pay the penalty for our sin so that now we can experience forgiveness of sin and a relationship that will last all of eternity. He gives us a choice. Through the gospel, we understand that we can know God, be set free, made whole, forgiven of all sin, and now can grow in maturity in this new life in Jesus. But we can only know and grow in that relationship through his word couple questions for us all this morning. Number one, do I know Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Has there ever been a time in my life where I knowingly and willingly said yes to Jesus, understanding my sinfulness, understanding my separatedness from God, and I said yes to Jesus? For me, that happened in 1997. For you, it might have happened some other time. But someone here, more than likely, has never said yes to Jesus. You're religious, you go through the motions, you look the part, you can speak the language, but you might have never put your faith in Jesus. Number two, as a follower of Jesus, are you walking and growing? Do you believe God's word? Are you reading God's word? Are you studying God's word? Are you involved in a small group? We are kind of an anomaly when it comes to church life here. Typically our small group attendance outweighs our worship attendance, but some of you only come to worship. You never go to a small group. I would argue that you need to be in a small group. You need fellowship. You need another aspect of the teaching of God's word in your life. 
So where are you at in that area of discipleship? Maybe some of you need to be baptized. You are in relationship with Jesus, but you've never been scripturally baptized by immersion. So what do we need to do today in response to God's word? What is it God's speaking into your life? He takes his word and he presses upon each and every heart in a different way. What is he saying to you? Let's pray. Father, this morning, your word is truth. It is the inerrant, infallible, holy word of God. You've given it to us as a gift so that we can know who you are, so that we can know who we are and the predicament that we are in in sin. You've given it to us so that we can know how we can get out of that deadly predicament that leads us to eternal separation from you, and it comes through Jesus. And this morning I pray that if there's anyone, senior adult, man or woman, a middle-aged man or woman, a teenager, a child, that today they know that they're not in relationship with Jesus. Today you're beginning to press that upon their heart. God, I pray that they would respond in faith and repentance today. Give them the boldness and the courage to just come and say, I want to talk with someone about what it means to follow Jesus. Lord, for believers today that just need encouragement to continue to press on, I pray that your word's done that. God, I thank you that you give us everything that we need for everything in life. Maybe they're wondering and faltering in their faith. God, encourage them. Inspire them. Exhort them to recommitment or pressing on. God, for others that need to be baptized, maybe some have been visiting for some time, and you're just saying to this that individual or a family, you're saying today's the day to begin to move toward membership and connect with this church. This is where you need to be. This is where you need to serve. This is where you need to be under the tutelage and the authority and the oversight that I have for you. So God, give them boldness and courage. As we move into a time of response, help us to do just that.